Welcome to Curious Coaching, the Sport Northern Ireland podcast for coaches who are driven to explore new ways, thirsty for new ideas, and passionately curious about how they can maximise the power of sport through great coaching. The podcast that seeks not to answer coaching questions, but to provoke them. And welcome to the Curious Coaching Podcast with your hosts, Michael Cook and myself, Simon Tool. In this episode, it's a little bit different for us than normal in that we are focusing on a theme within coaching rather than an individual coach themselves, though we're really, really delighted to be joined by three people who have made a big contribution to the development of coaches and as coaches themselves as well. So today we're going to be exploring women in coaching and some of the challenges that have resulted in us having fewer women in coaching than we would really like to have. Today our three guests are Elaine Rice, former Northern Ireland Netball senior team coach, currently community coach in Crumlin with the Netball Club she she helped establish there, as well as a a PE lecturer at St Mary's College Belfast. We have Tandy Jean Hockey, who's a senior lecturer in coaching and sports development at Ulster University and also in the past made significant contribution to the coaching system in Northern Ireland, supporting governing bodies and also working for the lead organisation for coaching in Northern Ireland when it was in place. And lastly, but by no means least, really pleased to have Lucy Moore, Sport England Head of Professional Workforce, also a coach developer and a hockey coach which makes you really good in my book um, just for that last bit in particular. You're... um, uh, really welcome, and I'll hand across to Michael to get us started. To echo what Simon said there, you're very, very welcome. We're, we're delighted to have all three of you on. And I just want to kick off uh, a little bit around your journey into coaching. I'm really curious about uh, how that started and, and how you've been involved in coaching since. So could you give us a little bit of a, a breakdown in terms of, of that, that coaching journey for you? Um, Elaine, would you be able to kick us off, please? Yeah, well, I grew up playing a lot of netball. And then when I came to Belfast to do my teacher training um, at, at St Mary's, I was playing for Belfast ladies and there was a lack of junior players coming through. So myself and Claire Rose McGinnis set up a junior club there. Um, after a while, we got a wee bit of success with it. We started both coaching representative underage groups. I was assistant coach for the Northern Ireland Universities team. And then the head coach got sick and we managed to win the British University Games. So I got elevated up to head coach of it and before being asked to take on the Northern Ireland senior job. Fantastic. So quite quite a wide range of experience there, starting um, you know, from the university sector and from the club sector, moving into international coaching at and, that point. And now back to the children again. Brilliant. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> And, and same question to you, Lucy. Yeah, so I um, I was always a sporty kid, um, and I loved playing football when I was uh, when I was a, a small child. But then when I went to secondary school, football wasn't for girls, so I got into hockey because it's a similar thing with with a stick. Um, and for as long as I can remember, I suppose I've been bossing other kids around and organising people. And then my teachers decided that would turn into a a career in coaching so I qualified officially as a coach when I was 16 and and just went from there really so I've coached a variety of adults and kids and uh, a little bit of player pathway stuff over here in England but my passion really is beginners like whether they're adult beginners or or little people uh, that's where it's the most fun and, and uh, that's where you know we, we know it's really important that youngsters get a really good start 
and in terms of falling in love with sport for the for the long term. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah. Thank you for that, Lucy. And and Tandy, same question to you. Thanks, Michael. I think um, for myself, I came from a, a slightly different uh, background because I had the opportunity of doing uh, dance and gymnastics from, from a young age, um, looking at the uh, development of myself from, from a fundamental perspective. Did a wee bit of swimming. Um, and then whenever I went to, into big school, um, I should say primary school as well, I was a bit like Lucy. Um, I played football um, and I always remember that I kept getting told off um, and I used to get the, the meter stick every day because you were supposed to be back in the classroom um, when the bell went for, for lunch. Um, and of course, I was always back in the classroom with the boys. Uh, so it was always caught on, um, probably my playing football with the, with the fellas. Um, when I moved into an all-girls grammar school, um, the traditional sport was, was netball. Um, and that's where I started to uh, be involved in netball. I actually didn't start playing um, until I was 14. Um, and I had the opportunity then to go on and uh, go into a, a club setting um, where I was playing with quite uh, older ladies at that particular point in time. So it was down in uh, Cumber Phoenix um, at that point. Uh, we had sort of um, no real coach at, at one point. Um, and because I had the passion for wanting to develop myself in the area of coaching, um, I got the, the role of being coach and player and umpire at that point which was very difficult um, because of the, the older generation um, and the respect then sometimes as a player um, and being a particular coach. Uh, that passion uh, for coaching stemmed into becoming a gymnastic coach as well. So um, I worked in a community setting within gymnastics as well as netball. Uh, and that led me on to the where I am now in, in regards to sort of more uh, coach education rather than specifically coaching myself. Um, however, I am involved in, in, in overviewing and seeing a lot of coaches in different sports. And I think that's where the challenge is sometimes is uh, for, for us to know exactly what we should be looking for in assisting coaches um, along their, their journey and along their path. Fantastic, Tandy. And uh, interesting to note that, that you've coached in a number of different sports. Uh, and as you quite rightly say, your role right now um, does involve understanding where, where coaches um, apply their, their skills in, in a wide range of sports. So that's, that's useful insight. Yeah, so I think what we wanted to really do with the podcast today was, I suppose, to offer people who are listening some thoughts and ideas about actually how can we, how can we change the current um, diversity of the workforce in, in terms of gender um, to be more representative of the people who actually play sport and more representative of the population as a whole in, a, in an ideal world. And, we know um, that 25 or 30% of the workforce um, in Northern Ireland, the coaching workforce, are um, female. And I know the stats might be higher in other places. And we get into the performance coaching workforce, it even gets smaller. And we're down to maybe um, 10% odd who are working with, um, with uh, athletes who are likely to be um, at the Olympics. And so we wanted to explore that a little bit today and, and some of the, um, the challenges with that, but definitely some of the solutions. And we're really conscious of not wanting to get into not not wanting to get into them, but not wanting to get stuck on um, old stereotypes. And I think your three backgrounds totally take us away from those right for right for a start. Um, because you've all got into coaching at a relatively early age and, and come through the the quite similar um, coaching journeys um, to uh, Michael's and mine. I think from from science work. So we're re really conscious of of not wanting to do that. Uh, one one um, 
thing this year that to me did try and blow some of that stuff apart. Um, Lucy was your your blog of where all the female coaches. So I just wondered if we would maybe start with you and and you could maybe talk us through some of the key things that you were really trying to get away or get across through that blog. Yeah, sure. So firstly, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Um, I guess where it came from is that a bit like you guys, I was involved in lots of conversations at work about why aren't there more women in coaching? Why don't we have broader diversity of coaches? And uh, it's something that we've been talking about for a really long time. There have been all sorts of women's coaching initiatives, women's coaching programs going for a long time. And yet the the picture still remains quite stubborn, particularly when you get into talent pathways and high performance. So in England, our stats are, are probably a bit different to, to yours. That actually, when you look at um, people being coached, it's it's almost half and half men and women delivering at this baseline community level. So we've got lots of people who are interested and get started in coaching as as women. Um, but then as you start to get into the qualifications, it goes off a cliff. And then you start to go into talent pathways and even more so it gets worse. And then when you get into high performance, the numbers fall even more dramatically. So actually there's something going on, whether it's structural whether it's to do with the access to qualifications whether it's to do with the perceptions of what a good coach is or what the role requires you know there's something bigger than a lack of confidence or women not wanting to do it because they are there doing something so that's I guess where my my thinking started and then um I suppose I had more conversations and more interaction with more coaches and uh, it it sort of started to feel a bit like um, if you went to the doctors and you had a rash on your arm, you'd get cream for the rash. But if you didn't tell them about all your other symptoms, the problem would never go away. And that's kind of the way we've approached it. So for me, a lack of women in coaching is actually the symptom of a much bigger, more complex problem. It's not, it's not the problem. So yes, helping women to get more confident, putting on women's only programs, mentoring, sponsorship schemes, all of those stuff is helpful. But unless we start to look at the bigger, wider issues that are going on, we'll never make it go away. You know, a a lack of women is not the only challenge that we have. We also have a real lack of ethnic diversity in the coaching workforce in England. We really don't know how many disabled coaches that we have even within parasports you know so this is a symptom of a bigger problem when it comes to a lack of diversity Um, and the other thing for me was that there's a big stereotype uh, and I don't know whether it's the same for you guys that women are seen as nurturing and warm and fluffy and so therefore are great with kids and so when we do do interventions often it's oh we need a more nurturing style we've got to get a woman and that in itself is not true. There are plenty of men who can fulfill that role. But these are sort of the traps, which then prohibits women from going into high performance. Um, and so you start to, when you start to unpick it, there's more and more and more to this. And it and it starts to present itself less as a women versus men thing and more of like a coaching thing. Like this is a thing with sports coaching that we need to, to get amongst and unpick. So I guess that's where where the article came from I think it's still something I'm throwing around and talking to people uh, and I haven't got really any answers Um, but it was interesting I was listening to something the other day um, a lady called Alice Eagle she 
works in business a lot and she was saying that actually concepts like the gra the glass ceiling are not not that helpful because it makes the idea that the problem's at the top and actually when you look at women's progression in sports coaching the challenges and barriers are all the way along so so it's even things like those kind of concepts that, that we need to look at is it a glass ceiling is it the problem the transition from being talent into high performance or are there other ones you know there are probably other ones and what are they and why are they there? So um, as a whistle stop, I guess that's the brain dump of what my article says and where it came from. No, brilliant. It's definitely worth um, having a read. I know we'll, we'll share the link in the session to the, this blog. It's definitely worth having a read of as well if, you, if you're listening to this. Thank, thanks for that, Lucy. I think that paints a really, really um, good opening, opening picture for us and, and gives us somewhere um, to move from. So I know obviously Elaine and Tandy both um, coached, developed coaches um, uh, within the Northern Ireland um, setting. So Elaine, I'm, I'm going to come to you because um, uh, the I suppose you uh, see that of coaches coming through um, and all the students that you're working with and things, but also uh, I suppose Lucy's point um, around some of the high performance stuff and you've, you've obviously coached Commonwealth Games and things like that as well. Uh, World Cup so just wondered if you had any views. There was so much in Lucy's blog that I maybe hadn't considered before and um, in that I prepare coaches but I don't really look at the the barriers it's more about the instruction and what what they're doing and maybe it's a, a, a pureness on my part that I haven't really looked at the background to it before. Um, one thing that really resonated was that people are a bit afraid of making the mistakes and you know females are maybe a, a bit more wary of that and I, I think that we need to recognize that no coach is infallible and uh, as long as the athletes feel cared for and looked after and not to take away from the nurturing part because I do think that is part of being a coach as well that you do care for for them um, in Northern Ireland we definitely have the same issues when I look at the sheer numbers of, of female coaches and that I would be hard pushed to name any really outside of netball, um, gymnastics and dance, yes, but um, in terms of team sports and uh, a lot of my experiences, obviously, in that area, um, there's definitely a gap that needs explored and investigated and work out what we need to do in Northern Ireland. And to me, Northern Ireland is quite a um, unique place and it has to be bespoke to us. You know, we can take, we can learn lessons from England sport and that, but whatever we do needs to come from a Northern Ireland perspective and I for one haven't read the blog now will reflect on what I'm doing here uh, to make sure that I can be part of the solution. No definitely and funny um, recently one of one of the trainees at our outdoor centre um, Effie she, she had written a blog for us um, which was around um, I think she titled it hands up in the end because she'd, she'd basically gone from thinking she needed to deliver perfect sessions to understanding that the people who were the people she looked up to were the people who reflected most on their mistakes and learned most from their mistakes. And she talks in that blog about just a complete change of mindset. So it sort of builds on, on some of the, the, the reasons uh, or some of the things that you're highlighting early in, um, for, as you say, for both male and female coaches. Tandy, can I, can I maybe bring you in um, now? Any, any views on, on the, the context here, Tandy? Yeah, um, I know because I read I read Lucy's blog as well, and um, because of my involvement with the, the female sports forum and the Active Fit and Sporty uh, project, um, I was challenging myself to think about yes, we have had in individual intervention programs, but they have been with purpose, Lucy, and I think 
that's the thing to say, yes, sometimes they do work, but it comes down to then the understanding of the purpose and the purpose of having those type of intervention programs. Um, um, I went back and just read through some of the, the you know, the, the findings because we have done some focus groups for those who have been involved in those particular projects. Um, and one of the things that resonated was the fact that they feel they felt because they had a free space and a, a space to communicate effectively with one another. Um, and one of the key things that someone has indicated that they felt that they could lean into the rumbles. And I think that was a really lovely thing to say that they could lean into the rumbles, that they could really challenge themselves to think about the negativity sometimes they do have within their particular environments um, and maybe the struggle they have uh, getting their, their thoughts and opinions across. Um, and I further looked at that and I, and I thought about some, some of the other bits in, in regard to some of the other programmes, like the Engage Her Pro programme that runs through Sported, you know, here in Northern Ireland and is now in the UK as well. And, um, and the learning that has come from that um, and the importance of, of learning that, that, that we have, um, you know, even thinking about, you know, all the academic stuff in terms of theory of plant behaviour. That's exactly what we need to look at, you know, when we are taking into consideration some, some of the work that we do do on the ground. Um, you know that like we have the willingness to change, uh, but it's it's thinking about the male counterparts that we have, and sometimes um, that is the struggle that that maybe we're not that we're not seen as being as being as a, as valued uh, as other males, um, in that sometimes male dominated environment. Um, but it's having that understanding, that positive attitude, um, and to to acknowledge ourselves that we do do a good job, and when we aren't doing a good job, to acknowledge that as well. That sometimes we have to think and reflect upon ourselves, um, and say, what can we do to change? Um, and, and for me, whenever I was reading your blog, I was going, what what can I do whenever I'm delivering within my particular setting to make sure that I have um, effective effectiveness across, not just just that I'm working with but also the male counterparts um, and that we challenge each other um, to make sure that we're breaking down those subjective norms that we have and, and normalising that a coach is a coach in whatever environment you're actually in if it's a male environment or a female environment a disability environment you know socioeconomic community environment whatever you need to have the skill set um, and develop from that skill set and stuff that, that we would have done years ago Simon in terms of that high performing coach what is it? You know, the, the particular skills that you need is, you know, good communicator, good observational skills, um, have an understanding of the environment you're actually in and contextualize that um, and understand what you need to do for change to happen. No, thanks, Tandy. And, and that sort of segues us really nicely actually into um nearly where we were going to go with some of the questions today, because um I what we did do was we, we took a um a look at some of the literature in, in the area to try and stop thinking and start knowing <laughs> about what we were um, what we were doing a little bit. And um, when we did the literature review, it really tied back to some of the things. There was a lot of um, synergy, I think, between um, what we pulled out of that um, and some of the thoughts that Lucy had put down in paper with, within the blog as well. So um, we sort of distilled like four main themes out of those. Um, and we really wanted to unpack those with you guys today with a view to try and see what well, what could we do about that? You know, we, we know what some of the, the issues and challenges are. We know what the workforce roughly looks like at the moment, but what could we do about it? How could we um we take it forward? So for, for that, I know we, we leaned on the research of Professor Leanne Norman, Leeds Beckett quite a bit. Um, but even uh, Michael and I were chatting just before we uh, we started to record and um uh, we were saying actually um Sarah Milner at UK Coaching 
was another person who actually really helped us to better understand uh, how we need to look at this and, and helped us evolve our thinking a little bit from we need uh, women-only coaching programs to we need to coach change the coaching programs so that everybody can get involved in those. Um, so that's nearly, um, I think, how we've evolved our thinking a little bit, and we've certainly got a long way to go still, but um, that's how we've got to where we've got to. But yeah, as I say, Tandy, really nice segue across to Michael, and I know, Michael, you're going to pick up on the first of those barriers or walls, if we, as we've described them. Yeah, de- definitely. And just before we go into that, I think it was a really um, interesting point that, that Lucy had made about we don't have all the answers right now, and I think that makes it even more important to keep having the conversation and keep having the dialogue um, so we can address a range of issues that are are quite wide ranging. Um, So the the first thing that that came out of that review uh, was really around culture. And and we know that culture is often underpinned by, um, you know, or it's potentially seen as how we do things around here um, and and how that then relates into females and coaching. Um, and, and there may be elements like stereotypes, which we've talked about. There may be elements like conscious or unconscious bias. And I suppose my question to all, all three of you, um, how, how can we create positive change here? And I'll go to Elaine first, if you're okay with that, Elaine. Yeah, that's fine. Um, uh, first of all, I think it's important to notice that, that some of it is very deliberate bias. You know, that there's a, maybe people with issue with regard to their ego and their male ego being a bit challenged whenever a strong female comes in and and to play. Uh, but like I can just talk personally in that as a mother of three, I was frequently questioned about how could I afford to be away from my children and um I, I felt disapproved of on many occasions and and uh in t- terms of working full-time coaching and being a parent, it's all very, very tiring. And just having a support system in place, and I mean, both family and friends support, but the average male coach doesn't have those issues. Um, they do have the support. They do have an acknowledgement of their contribution and a public acceptance, which accepts, you know, th- that allows them to do their role. Um, in order for us to create positive change, I think we're a long way off that happening. As, like, as I say, as a mother of three children, um, I could only do it in blocks. I couldn't keep doing it. Um, so in order for it to happen, Sport and I uh, need to continue the work they are doing and promoting uh, female sports and coaches. And I think it's really important to have these conversations and, and get it out there. Um, and then demanding it from their national governing bodies too, that you know it's not a tick and box exercise. This is something if you want to develop your sport, then you need to develop your coaching base. And this is the way that we recommend that you do it and make the governing bodies accountable to it. Uh, Absolutely. I I think that's a really good point in terms of the organisations that are responsible for developing sport. See it as something that's totally embedded and it's not just uh, a bolt-on or or something that's a tick-box exercise, I think, as you described. And I I agree. I I think it has to be central to, to anything that we do. Um, Leanne, thank you for that. Over to Tandy. Um, Tandy, same, same question. How do you feel we can create positive change in relation to culture? Well, it, it, it's funny actually because that's what some of our master students are actually doing at the moment. Um, that's a critical part of their work. Um, and it's a challenge for everybody to even just to, to focus on what does culture actually mean. Um, and then when, when we consider that, that word culture, it comes down to the who, the what, the why, the where, when, all of that um, coming down to your coaching philosophy and the importance of understanding your coaching philosophy. Um, and where does that actually stem from? 
um, you know, understanding really your values and your beliefs. Um, and a lot of the time that's entrenched in people um, in regards to their identity and their, their culture of their particular sport. Um, and then when we come down sort of like to the coach education element of it um, and the factor of you coach the way that you are taught within your coach education programs. Um, and there's a real challenge if you've got an innovative and creative um, individual who may want to change how that coaching system is, is being developed and being run. Um, and that's a challenge, you know, if you're thinking from a, from a female perspective, trying to deliver on, on some male dominated um, sports. You know, you may not have the knowledge and skills, um, or sorry, the, the knowledge, the technical and tactical knowledge of that particular sport, but you've got the pedagogical knowledge of what should be being delivered and how to deliver. You know, so it's it's thinking outside the box, being critical, um, thinking about those experience triggers that you have, um, and reflecting upon those experience triggers within within your particular culture, um, and wanting and, and and challenging yourself to to make those changes that you're not going to be coaching and doing things that you have been coached because things have changed um, and we have to acknowledge that um, and the cultural shift needs to happen from our national government bodies and, and uh, I think some are changing um, some it's going to take a longer period of time to change you know things aren't going to change overnight it could take 10 10 years before we actually see particular cultural change and if you think about your your document now in terms of that DNA what is our DNA and understanding that and for females, we have a DNA, males have a DNA, but when you're thinking about coaching, everybody should have quite similar DNA because your purpose is you want to have learning to happen within your sessions um, and learning for the individuals that you're working with. Uh, absolutely. And, and within any given culture, there, there's going to be cultural norms. Um, and, and, you know, if we look at those critically, we'll say, well, actually, are those cultural norms positive? towards a diverse coaching workforce or, or are they negative and that's something we we need to consider um and, and over to you lucy then have you got any thoughts on, on how we might create positive change yes but tandy and elaine give them really good summaries and tandy said it earlier actually said it in the answer as well it's about having a purpose for me it's is an amazing coach what do we need to change about our environment to to get elaine in and rather than how do we make elaine fit our environment it's it's we we want to have the best coaches and if all of our coaches look exactly the same and have exactly the same background there's a strong chance that we haven't actually got the best people for the job this is a competitive advantage you wouldn't do it in another sector and uh, you know I think we have a bit of a culture of where we advertised and no women came forward obviously we'd appoint the best person on the day but they didn't come forward and so it's looking at things like how do we recruit, even at a club level, a coach for the under 15s, that goes, you start getting into the perception of what is a coach for the under 15s. But actually, you broke down what is the job you need doing? What is the kind of person you're looking for? How are you advertising it? You know, I think we have a bit of a culture where a volunteer takes on 20 million jobs and then he retires and you say, oh, does anybody want to take over from Bob? He works, you know every night of the week and both days on a weekend does anybody want to step in and fill Bob's shoes and the chances are no like it, and if they do it might be another Bob who's also you know retired and wants to so it's uh we make it unappealing and we need to think about just the simple steps of how are we going to find people how are we selling this job what's it like when you get there are you expected to be perfect are you expect to do all the admin or 
you know, are you coming in to be part of an environment of team? And and again, it, it isn't really a men women thing. It's just um, I think as Elaine said that the the system has been constructed in such a way that if you are a woman and you do have a family or other commitments, that it is disproportionately harder for you to to fit into the mold of the traditional be there every single day type coaching role. So um yeah it's having that purpose and, and and really being true to it that the reason we want this diversity isn't just for the sake of diversity it's because we genuinely want the best person for the job and in order to do that we might have to change the way we do things around here absolutely michael yeah. can, I, can i just step in there because just what, what lucy's actually said there about you know the, the volunteers i think that was a key thing with, with some bits that have happened with the engager project um, and even from a, from an FO club perspective, from a national government body perspective, that um, the volunteers to the ground, they were afraid to let go. And, and females sometimes are afraid to let go um, and things not to be done the way that they should be done. Um, um, and it, it's taken stock of there are other people around you who've been more than willing to do, but it's how you approach that um, and, and, and not be frightened to, to let go sometimes. Um, and for others to take over. Uh, it's about working together in, in that particular club setting um, effectively, more effectively than having, you know, so thinking about that leadership and the, the importance of having good leadership across is critical. And, and certainly one of, one of the things that we'll talk about um, in, in a few minutes is really around how, how we recruit um, coaches into the, into the workforce. Uh, and I think that's really important and, and that's been, been touched on a fair bit here. Um, Sam is going to pick up now uh, in terms of the second barrier, which really focuses around coach education and development. Yeah, thanks, Michael. I, I know we sort of, we sort of talked about this quite early on and nearly in the intro around um, coach education and one of the biggest barriers potentially, which is ironic when we're talking to three people who work in coach development and, and develop coach, coaches for a living, um, but is that we don't have enough people at the front of the room who look at like the female coaches would come in potentially being being one of the barriers or two. We don't have the right proportion necessarily of, um, of female coach educators. That seems to really contribute to some of the challenges around this. Um, uh, and our way of, um, I suppose, making everybody feel like yes, I belong in this in this environment. And we've already talked about early early on some of the great interventions we've seen of um, women only coaching programs or potentially targeted programs, and in absolutely no way saying stop doing those or that's not a good thing. It is a good thing, and it's part of the solution, but not all of the solution. I think is is what we're really trying to say. So. I suppose our question here, um, and we're going to bring you, Tandy, in to start with, is what could we do within the coach education system that would get us to a point in time where actually it's a coach education system for everybody that doesn't necessarily need extra bits um, on the top of it? Um, whenever I, I hear, hear that, that type of question, I sort of go back and think about... Um, how learning occurs and how we actually set up uh, that motivational climate being climate that change needs to happen um, and we envisage the behaviors that 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 we showcase um, uh, whenever we are educating that we give we think about um, you know the autonomy of support um, thinking about that self-determination theory you know the autonomy the relatedness the components 
because that's exactly what we want to happen um, if we're thinking about the development of um, the environment to ensure that that the learning actually happens. Um, I, I always think about some of the stuff from, from the All Blacks uh, in motivated climate, thinking about respect and um, thinking about target, you know, the responsibility that we have, that we're empowering the learning to happen, that we have that self-direction, you know, that self-reliance, that we take purpose in the people that we are actually working with, um, that we think about the overall engagement, that we are engaging them in the overall learning process and, and, and so much of the time. We don't give time for reflection to happen and um, to, to go away during those um, times to talk and to peer mentor each other through the process. That we are thinking about where they're coming from, that they have they are capable um, and they have got competencies. But how do we develop those companies that they that they may be struggling with um, for their own first personal areas of development and, and most of all the trust that we have trust in one another. Um, um, and that we have that understanding and trust, but it comes down to that leadership. And I think that's a critical thing we have to to always go back and think: um, who are the leaders? We all have a leadership role to play when we're thinking about coach education um, and development of a specific climate. You know, within that within that setting, the participants are leaders at points. Um, think about the style approach we take, um, and I think time. I think time. We have to take time um, in the learning. Um, and not rush things through and not stick into that particular plan. Unfortunately, um, some coach educators have a plan. Uh, let me tick off all these competencies. Um, Tickety-boo, we've done. Uh, I think that's a challenge as well. So it's nearly going back and creative, innovative in what and how we do things. Thanks, Sandy. And I know definitely reading through some of that, um, some of that research, uh, the individualised, personalised approach to to coach education came out really strongly but when Michael and I have been looking at stuff around general principles of modern learning those things those things come out it's it's yeah. not necessarily just a gen- actually that would just be better education wouldn't it it would be definitely better education I think the, the difficulty we have is you know that there's a need to have experiential learning um, and to have that active mentor working with you However, if we look at coach education systems, it's the viewpoint that the manager has to be um, at a higher level and it has to be in that sport for a lot of sports. And it doesn't have to be, you know, if you've got that passionate person who can be that critical friend, you know, that's what a mentor is. It's a critical friend who you can have those discussions with, you can have those particular um, solutions, you know, help to solutionize um, and, and give you advice when, when you need that particular advice along the way. Yes, um, it's better if it's done live, but it doesn't have to be done live. Um, you know, the recordings can happen um, and the discussions can happen away from, from a, a live session. So it's being creative and innovative in, in what we do and how we change sometimes what we are doing at the moment. Yeah, no, great. Thanks, thanks, Tandy. Lucy, you talked early, early doors there earlier on about your take on actually there's lots of women involved in coaching, but the qualification step seems to lose lots of them for some reason. What can we do to stop that happening? So I think there's, there's lots of different things. Sometimes it's how coaching courses are marketed. That The first step is a weekend thing that you have to go to wherever that is. Like that's immediately a barrier. You think about how much um, we've now been living in a virtual world and how, how people could get involved in starting their coaching learning in a different way potentially using technology um 
where where do you market these courses and what even is a coach you know sometimes that word can be off-putting to people if if the picture on your poster is someone a man holding a clipboard um you know so just starting to think about those other unintended things I think a bit like Tandy was saying you know the delivery on the day if you are going down a, a course route how those spaces are um facilitated what happens in the course you know there's there's so much you could do with people who are already doing some kind of helping out to build their network to help them feel connected and safe to fail and try and then to have that personal connection of do you think you want to take this to the next level but that's why it's quite hard to do this as a systemic change it needs everybody and it needs people in clubs and in communities to be having these conversations with the women around them to to sort of give them that confidence as well as making sure that the opportunities fit their needs and and are well scheduled and and thoughtfully timed so for example in England lots of our venues where we would host coach education courses are not near any public transport so it's difficult if you haven't got a car so that's not anything to do with gender but thinking about what are the unintended consequences of the way we set things up at the moment pretty much it's always at a weekend or so if you work shifts or you've got a family that's an issue um and so it's just having a look at all of it not not just the the women in this instance if that makes sense no it makes perfect perfect sense to me elaine any views around that yeah yeah just um probably reiterating reiterating a lot of what lucy and tandy said um for the most part, I find coach education very onerous. It's very time consuming. And we know that females in particular are quite time poor. Um, with that, it's also very expensive. And we know that female sports don't have the same level of funding and sponsorship that male sports have. So there are immediate barriers that come into play. Uh, the last point, but this is kind of irrelevant of gender, is that to me, it's very formal and maybe deaf by competency. You know, a, a point Tandy made maybe more eloquently um, in that it is very reflective of a very bureaucratic system, you know, where it's so much paper and so much, and ultimately coaching is about being with people and getting involved with people. And if we're doing files and paperwork and planners, and then we're probably missing the boat a wee bit. And I know that for me would be off-putting. I um, don't actually have that many coaching qualifications on the grounds that I was simply too busy coaching and having babies to, to complete them. So uh, like Nepal Northern Ireland at one point offered for me to go and do my level three for three weekends in England. It wasn't going to happen. How do you fit that in when you're doing Northern Ireland coaching? And, you know, um, and so on paper, I, I'm, I'm missing quite a bit. To be honest, I didn't want to do it. The bottom line is I didn't want to do the coach education because I felt every time I was with the players, I would learn more. Um, and like in order for female sports to do better in the coach education front they need more sponsorship and that has to come from a complete equality part from the government funding um there was a thing in the the southern government there last week where the female players get uh, 0.7 million towards their their training funds where the the male players are getting three million and that's astonishing in 2020 that there's still be so, so much inequality and Therefore, it has to be more accessible to females. So that is reducing the cost and reducing the time demands. Thanks, Elena. Definitely reading through some of that stuff. That was one. 
it's maybe sounds stupid not thinking of it before, but um, one of the papers had focused on, I think it was maybe football, maybe, and it, it focused on, well, actually, if a male invests that amount of money, they can move into a club where there's a salary attached or at least an honorarium or something attached to that post. But actually, female football isn't at a stage where that income's coming through. I just hadn't thought about it from that perspective. So even just as an investment pro- uh, prospect, it's much better investment for a male in that situation than, than a female. While I know there's loads of males who invest lots into coach education who don't do a voluntary role as well, but it just wasn't one that I'd um, uh, particularly thought of before. Lucy, if you don't mind bringing you back in again around, I know I can see your head nodding when Elaine was talking around um, she's coaching and she's learning on the job uh, coaching. And this isn't necessarily, I suppose, a, a gender thing, but like, how do we make more of that in coach education that the time spent learning and learning on the job is recognised more um, than we probably do so at the minute? Yeah, so um, as Elaine was saying earlier, filling in a portfolio isn't coaching. You know, coaching is on the ground. It's a relationship with, with people. It's a practical It's a practical skill. It's um, And like any practical skills, whether you're learning DIY or learning your sport, you learn by trying it, maybe watching something, having a go, making a mistake, getting some feedback, trying it again. So actually, you know, that we need to find ways where we can assess and reward people based on their practical experience that they have and seeing them actually doing the job. Like, you know, it wouldn't, you wouldn't give somebody a qualification in hairdressing if you didn't get them to cut hair like you wouldn't get them to fill in a book about it you would get them to do it and you would work with them when they were in a training salon and you know so there's something in the how do we recognize what the job is and I think for me linked to that as well is that the idea that coaching isn't just about the the technical tactical of your sport and how do we recognize those qualities as much as anything else? Because we've all seen those coaches who know everything about their sport, but they can't coach because they can't connect with people. And equally, you've seen those coaches who know nothing about the activity that they're doing, but they can captivate the people in front of them just by being who they are. And so I guess this is where it flips into a what, what do we want from coaches? What is a good coach? How would we know it if we saw it? And how would we assess for it? How would we teach it? Well, we'd probably get people to practice a lot. Um, and so we start to get into like radical changing the whole system territory quite quickly. Yes, no, we've got you, definitely. And and it sort of it rings true was uh, what Elena just said, I think, around uh, coaching by people and being with people is definitely uh, aligned to that. Tanda, I can see your head nodding away in the, in the background there when uh, Lucy was talking about, I'm just thinking you guys, I suppose, at university, have tried to put quite a lot of applied practice in into the courses there, and um, but I know that you you've worked on various governing body awards as well. Can you see how we could do more in that in that space that would make a difference? Yeah, I think I think the 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 key the key thing is as as Lucy and Elaine both said, you know, it's about the ability to perform on the ground in front of the individuals that you're actually coaching. So it's it's very context specific. If we're thinking about how some national government body awards do their coaching um, and do their assessments, and, and that word assessment puts, puts uh, first of all, puts the, the poor candidates off 
um, you know, and I hate the word candidate as well because they are the learner and they are the, they are the coach at that particular point in time. Um, if you're doing it and you're in their own environment, they feel a lot more comfortable because, you know, you're assimilating, you're assimilating exactly what they, they should be doing. They can't react to um, what what they would normally do if, if they were in a, in a true coaching setting. And I was actually on um, a session earlier on today where they were talking about reflection and think aloud reflection. Um, and I think, you know, that's something that, uh, that I'm starting to think about. How, how can I start to look at that for me, even for me, whenever I'm delivering my sessions with, 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 um, with, 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 with uh, you know, my learners? You know, I'm thinking aloud, why am I actually doing what I'm doing at that particular point in time? What am I actually visually attending to? What am I thinking about? What am I cognitively thinking about? What decisions have to be made at that point in time? Because coaching isn't easy. It is quite complex, um, but you have to make a decision for yourself. You know, what, what do you want to get out of coaching? Um, and how do you want to better yourself? Um, and it is through experience and experiential learning. Making the mistakes, learning from those mistakes, and not being frightened to. And I think whenever we go back and think about um, assessments, and I know I, I go back to an experience that I had in regards to whenever I first came into coaching, um, and it was the old Northern Ireland Netball Coaching Awards at level, level two. Uh, God only knows where it, what level is at the moment. And I know that I failed that first time around. Um, it was a negative upon me um, and, and feeling, you know, I'm just not good enough here. And I think we have to be very, very mindful of that whenever we think about how we look at those particular competencies and say, you're just not yet helpful. It's even that language, that discourse we use in, in coaching can be really have a, a true negative effect and put them off. So it might be, you know, this, this is maybe an area for development um, and supporting that, that person um, through the particular process and giving them an opportunity to, to try it again and keep trying and keep trying and keep supporting. Um, and, and when Lane was saying about, you know, the blog books and, and all of those, yes, it's time consuming. I can remember back to the time when we were looking at EKCC during coaching and live times, um, and looking at it for, for Nepal and the fact, yes, it's going to cost too much. Um, there was a lot of bureaucracy with, with regards to that. Um, there was a different cohort of uh, committee at that particular point in time. We didn't want to lose identity. So if we think about our identity for, for our particular national government bodies and having a, a qualification that is fit for the purpose for us and not trying to take things that, that may not fit within your context. You know your people, you know what they that what they want um, um, and you know how you can support them. And it's trying to support people and not put people off. So when they instead of in terms of the, um, the cost, yes, a hell of a lot of costs for, for coaches to, to get the coaching qualifications. Some of the high performing coaches that we have, and I'm saying high performing, not high performance, high performing coaches may have very limited coaching qualifications. They've got experiential learning. They know and they adapt to what they see in front of them. And hopefully change will be happening, you know, in, in an awful lot of the governing bodies um, due to, you know, the, the new structure um, um, and the DNA element that, that you guys have, have published. Um, and working with national government bodies um, as you are at the moment to make the change and affect the change, not just for females, but across the board to those um, across all of the different target groups we have. No, thanks, Tandy. I think that's something definitely I'm going to hand over Michael now to, to take a look at the, at the third barrier, but something that I would really want to revisit um, within the last one um, is that uh, person-centred aspect of it. 
Yeah, and, and the third barrier really focuses around uh, recruitment into the coaching workforce. And I think this is a challenge generally, but certainly a challenge um, for female coaches. Um, and, and there may be a number of different reasons behind that. It may be a poor uh, recruitment process or potentially no recruitment process. And there could be things like, um, you know, burnout and, you know, increased workload for volunteers, which isn't too appealing. Or the fact that actually we're not going out there recruiting in the right way. And I know, Lucy, this was something that you had discussed um, in terms of actually making coaching roles more attractive and more appealing. Um, is, if, we were start, if we were going to start to shift um, some of the processes around recruitment, how would you uh, go about doing that? That's a great question. I was actually talking about it today with um, a colleague and it's made me think, about how actually we get young girls interested in coaching even younger so before I think you know before we even get into recruiting them to be a coach what are we doing with with young leadership with helping out schools with helping out younger age groups in clubs you know kind of normalizing being part of that setting and and helping out for those people who are already in sport we're also got to think about parent helpers and how you might get a mum involved might be different to how you might get a dad involved and, and what what is the role that you're selling and the way that you describe it and how are you, how are you talking to them about what you need from them as a, as a coach would be very different. When you start to think about talent and high performance where the commitment is is getting more in terms of possibly time, it's thinking about being overt with um, any opportunities for support if you have with childcare or or shared jobs that you might be able to offer and making those things come up front um, it's thinking about again what is the role that you're asking that person to to fulfill and given what what both uh, Elaine and Tandy have said about qualifications what are your requirements of the job so, you know, what are the prerequisite qualifications that you need somebody to have? So um, particularly with tutors in England, you know, historically, we've had to ask people to have a very high level sports qualification before we allowed them to become a tutor. And actually, immediately, we're fishing from a very small pool. So it's not surprising that we don't have a diversity in the in the tutor workforce because we put this barrier to have this thing, which not very many people have, which doesn't necessarily lead to competence in the job so it would need to be a different solution for for different contexts I suppose but for me it's it's about being really clear on why you want that person to come in and what is the job you're asking them to do and thinking about being a bit more proactive because I think we all have the oh well it, it will take the best person when they apply but um yeah think I've waffled on but it might make sense. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I think those are really useful practical ideas of how we can actually instigate some some change here. And it's becoming aware to me as we have these conversations that these barriers are quite interlinked. So we might need to to you know address culture uh, in order to address recruitment recruitment. We might need to address recruitment before we can address coach education and development. And there is definitely something intertwined in all of them. Um, Elaine, over to you then, um, just on that uh, thought around recruitment, what, what interventions can we, or what changes can we make to support a better recruitment process? You see, Michael, I might struggle to answer that question and that 
I do think it's back to female participation and I am surrounded by strong females and uh, teachers here, teachers, coaches, friends. They don't want to coach. (laughs) And I don't know whether that's systematic and that they grew up never feeling it was an option. So really, if we could wind the clock back 20 years, maybe these are strong, confident women who any club uh, high performance would be delighted to have. I'm talking about even former international athletes. They don't see it as a viable option or choice. Um, maybe maybe I'm wrong and I'm maybe taking the women's coaching movement back by saying they don't want to coach. But unless we go back and with the current crop of players, let them have a voice, let them input, let them make decisions, um, just listening to them and building their confidence, empowering them, have them working with children, making it a financial option. I know it certainly is not a financial option for most at the minute, so therefore it can't be viable when there's so many other careers that these bright, intelligent young women can do. Um, So I don't have an answer to tell you how to do it for winding back the clock or starting from scratch now and really pushing it for the future. When When you say wind back the clock, would you subscribe to the idea that Lucy just said about um challenging um females to get involved at a younger age and, and assuming those leadership roles in some way because at some point then you potentially get hooked into coaching and you find out the benefits of it and the enjoyment of it you see michael again I'm, I'm in two camps there i feel i started coaching too young to the oh. detriment detriment of my own playing career um and as it vastly decreases in time i'd be very aware of Oh, I wish it started that a wee bit later. You know, so if we want females to get the best out of sport, then we need to let them play when they can play as well. So there's no easy answer to that one. And um, I'm sorry, I can't give a more uh, intelligent input to it. But um, I just feel it's something we, we need to do. Definitely, as Lucy said, start with the participation, work on the quality particularly in terms of funding and then move on to the, the, the next bit. Um, I know that in the AFL, uh, the AFLW, sorry, in the WNBA, they've started to have all-female backroom teams. I don't necessarily think that's the way forward. You know, it's it's a matter of shutting the door and I don't think we should shut doors to anybody. Um, you know, I did always have males in my backroom team and I'm happy to do so, even in an all-female sport. But I, I just, I don't have a definite, here's your plan, go for it. Um, Sorry. <laughs> and listen, I, I think it's okay, you know, not to have that answer right now. I think the important thing is that we continue to have the conversation around it and we continue to ask those questions because that'll help us develop a better understanding. It'll help us develop more dialogue. And at some point in the future, maybe we can answer that question quite succinctly. Yeah, I, I also, so Michael, I, I also wonder on that, having met some of the players that Elaine has coached on a couple of occasions and obviously not, not knowing them that well, but when you go into that environment, the, the, the environment you were coaching in with the Northern Ireland um, netball team, as you say, they're, they're, they're girls or they're women who have high commitment careers and they somehow squeeze international sport or maybe two elite sports for some of them um, around those. And I, I wonder sometimes, and again, this isn't a male-female thing, it's just in general, do, do we sometimes overdo performance athletes being the next coaches versus actually somebody you know they actually might be burnt out at that stage it might be a long time before they want to give that amount of time again but there might be somebody else actually same age profile same gender same everything else but just haven't hasn't been completely 
every spare moment of their being hasn't been in netball or whatever other sport it has been for a long time and maybe are there other populations around that? I don't know, Elaine, if you have any views on that from, you, you know those people a lot better than I do. Well, it, it's interesting. It was something that England Netball did with their current uh, England Netball coach, uh, Jess Felby. She was like the 12th player on an England programme and they quickly moved her, um, this is my reading of the situation, and they, and they coaching quite quickly and now are reaping the benefits of it and that she's now the national head coach, you know, having had plenty of experience from quite a young age. Um, I, we don't have the player pool to be able to remove them out of that. But definitely with the burnout, if you have given your all, you know, I'd be amazed even that when we go back to watch matches, that to me that all the ex-players aren't there because to me, they should be there in abundance. And um, But I do feel that there's a definite, they've given so much of themselves while, while, as you say, having very busy careers as well, that it's, it's not fallible to keep doing it you know long term and then go straight into coaching as well it's it's too much thank you Julian and over to Tandy then Tandy what's your thoughts on recruitment hi Michael I was just I was just listening to Elaine there and I know because there's there's a couple of the players who have done their coaching courses coaching and qualifications who are senior representative players for Apple and they're absolutely fantastic you know, they will be brilliant. Um, but yes, they're they're young. They've got um, careers um, and they're still playing and they probably will still keep playing for, for a number of years to come. I think I, I go back because I've been involved with being a sports firm on the active fitness body. Um, you know, there's a clear pillar, four pillars there in, in regards to you know, media, media role models, um, the leadership in terms of workforce and then in terms of research evaluation. Um, so there, there have been programs that have been developed across the, the six partners that, that did receive funding from the Department of Communities Health in Northern Ireland. And one of those in, in regards to when Lucy was talking about, you know, the younger age group and, um, you know, the YST program that, that has been rolling out for the last number of years in Northern Ireland um, through, through Amanda Mogey when she was project manager. You know, the GLAMS project, you know, uh, the girls' leadership and um, marketing. Um, and where they had the opportunity to develop their leadership skills um, um, and to do specific programs within within their school setting, um, how that rolls out then with you know students coming to university, we, we all know that there's there's a specific dropout, and and this is the I coach kids the session on Wednesday, uh, whenever Catherine Woods was, was or yeah. Uh, Catherine Woods was, was was talking about you know the, the dropout rate, but it's not dropout, there's drop in. Um, and so what we're really looking at is making sure that we have participation across the life course and that, that individuals are still still participating, but also where that route might go. Um, I understand totally, yes, we need to work at a younger age group. Um, and if we're thinking about what happens in, the, in PE um, um, and the leadership opportunities possibly within PE um, and how shift and change can happen, you know, there are the UK Leaders Awards and how effective and influential they are. I think we have to look and acknowledge that. Um, that, that might be the first step in to get the leadership qualifications, that those understanding, those skill set, the knowledge understanding, and then going into your, you know, your sports specific element of it. But it's it's this key skills are important. Um, if I know from working with, with the students um, in the university, because we were lucky enough to get some funding um, in regard to uh, a leadership programme as well through the Active Fitness Committee, 
Um, and initially, I looked at it as, as students across the wider university and not specifically students within the school sports because I thought they should have the skill set, they should have the self confidence, self esteem to be able to deliver um, in, a, in a sporting setting because they've come in to be a sports person. And that's not the case. You know, we feel that students who are coming in to be PE, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done with those particular students. Um, and, and it's interesting whenever you listen to them when, and whenever you, you, you chat to them afterwards, you go, what did you learn about? What did you gain? Um, and it's just feeling valued. And I think that's what we need to understand about, um, you know, how we recruit people and that acknowledge, the, you know, the small bit that they actually can add to, to our overall system. Um, and, and working with them um, in an effective way is important. There are programs out there. Uh, it's how we utilise them in a more effective way. Go back to the Activate Theatres program that there was within Northern Ireland a number of years ago. Um, and then if you now think about the task finish that's happening within uh, young people, you know, there, there's there's a role possibly there in, in regards to what, what can happen from, from your side of the house, you know, from Northern Ireland, making those particular connections across too. That's probably yeah. a long-winded, not what right answer but uh, that, that's just my thoughts but i think it's uh, you know it's understanding what that leadership role should be um where do we start where do we end um even if we think back to the uh, uh coaching ireland and where they accelerate people into the system into their level three qualifications um, i'm not sure if we still do that but you're losing out so those high performing athletes transitioning straight into to be a high performing coach or a high performance coach they, they've lost a lot of that, the knowledge, the skills, understanding, and the how-to skills. So it's making sure that we get things right um, and, and where the gaps are, how you develop that, whether that's through qualifications, through CPD, um, support networks, uh, but probably a long way to go for a num number of national government bodies still. Yeah, and, and I think it, it's making that recruitment um, process as effective as possible at any stage so if it's if you're an ex-athlete coming in to start your coaching career if you're um, someone who's quite young and you're trying to get them hooked on coaching quite early um, or if it's someone who's never been involved in sport before but actually would be a, a really useful volunteer or a coach um, to try and help them as much as possible make that seamless make them feel very welcome and be very clear about what they're being recruited into so we're coming to the uh, towards the the back end of it now. Um, Michael's going to ask one question to, to finish off in a second. But uh, the last factor, um, and we've talked about this throughout, um, so I, I don't think we need to explore it in too much detail. I'm nearly going to ask you for a, a a solution that you might have one 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 solution that you might have around this is around the personal factor is is the last factor, and this tends to be the one that ends up always being the stereotype of this is the issue as opposed to this is one of the issues. Um, so uh, the, the, the my last question before, before I hand over to, to Michael to ask the, the last question of the podcast is what one thing as a coaching system could we do that would allow the flex um, to, to let the biggest cross-section of people come into coaching? Um, where sometimes actually there might be barriers to, to them at the minute, you know, in terms of... Um, uh, whether that's personal circumstances or or personal outlook, personal confidence, whatever whatever that happens to be, but what what one thing um could we do that that would um that would make a big difference to start with? So, Elaine, I'm going. I know you're not going to like me for this, but I'm going to come to you first. <laughs> it, it, it's a difficult one, you know. People don't want to say the lack of confidence, but it is a big issue, and it's, I don't think there's any harm in addressing it. That said, you know we can say it's not just a female issue 
if it's females have the issue with the confidence, then it's time to us to grab the bull by the horns and and either work and get their confidence increased. Maybe start those that are able and confident. State it. I'm really good at what I do, and that's okay to say it because men have no difficulty in telling us how wonderful they are. A lot of the time, I have a situation when I take our males and females for netball in class, and if a boy scores two and misses ten, he tells me he was on fire. If a girl scores ten and misses two, she asks me not to play her and shoot her the following week. You know, and I have made it my life ambition to reduce male confidence on our students while increasing the, the female. And it is the issue. It is the issue along with funding and sponsorship. And until those things are, are, are addressed, we're not going to get anywhere. And um, that's why any female that is in, in public forum should be able to say, yep, yeah, I'm good at that. I did that. You know, that was me. That was my achievement. Um, and we're just not there yet. And hopefully um, females have to take responsibility, build up other females, empower the next generation of females. It's, it's our issue. It is a female issue. So let's do it. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Elaine. Lucy, one thing that you would change to, to address any one of those issues? I love that answer. That I, I don't know how to follow that. Um, <laughs> I think the thing for me would be to see coaches as participants you know like like we would see the players or the participants like if we if we stop seeing them as a piece of equipment or a, like we would a sports hall like understand that they are people who are participating they're just participating in a different way than the whole way that we would approach them which would shift you know like you you just take a different approach to everything so if we could see the coaching is a way of participating in sport that just isn't running about that that might change the way that we do stuff definitely that's a really interesting thought i i have not looked at it that way before brilliant thank you lucy and tandy i did laugh whenever Liam said that about the egos i know there's plenty of egos um in our place as well and that's not just uh students it's members of staff as well in terms of males and females but that's digressing um in terms of, of thinking of, about this question, um, I think it's about the effectiveness of, of, of communities of practice. Um, I think we have to consider that. Um, we need to take that collective action together. Um, as a voice, you know, uh, if we think about um, what has happened over the last number of years, you know, we are taking action, we are taking collective action, we are working together to, to make that effective change. And to think about the challenges we to share. I think we need to share with one another um, the good things, the bad things, um, to make sure that what we do has a future and what the future actually might look like um, for uh, those within us at the sporting context across Northern Ireland, whatever that might might look like. Um, you know, the fact that there has been such change because of the situation we're in, in terms of COVID now, you know, we've had to learn to adapt and um, to, to what, we, what we can do, what we can't do at the moment. But um, being connected and most importantly that anybody who's involved in, in the system that they actually feel cared for. Um, and um, that's critical. I think that's critical that we empower everybody, that they do feel cared for, that they have collective action um, and they look forward to a positive future in, in sport, whatever sport and, and the level that they compete or coach at or whatever. Brilliant. Love that. Michael? 
last question, guys, of, of the afternoon. You'll probably be glad to hear, or maybe not glad. Maybe you could stay on for another hour. Um, and, and it's it's really from from Lucy's blog. And one of the quotes from that blog was, uh, cumulatively, small decisions, choices, actions make a very big difference. And to finish off, I'd like to ask you, what small decision, choice or action are you going to take uh, into 2021? So nearly like a bit of a New Year's resolution uh, type type question here. Uh, what what um, decision, action, choice are you going to take into 2021 that will help make a, a beneficial change in women and coaching? First question, I think, for Tandy. Thanks very much, Michael. I was just contending there with um, being a mummy of three as well, children coming in <laughs> at the same time. Um, whenever I'm thinking of this is knowledge that we are we are all different, um, that we need to consider our own self-care. Uh, I think that's important. Um, I always go back to, to some of the bits I've been doing in terms of leaning into the rumbles um, and learning from those particular rumbles not to be afraid to challenge yourself um, and to think about everything we do as an experience and that experience trigger, to reflect upon those, to acknowledge those. Um, and for me to, to think about what change can I make, but also what change can other people make upon me? Because, you know, I'm still learning. I have to be open to the learning that, that needs to happen to make sure that what I do is, is effective in practice. Um, and to acknowledge that sometimes we make mistakes and we're all on our very own, very personal journey. There is a vision. What that vision is, still, I won't know until 2021, until we see exactly what we can do, what we can't do, especially in the environment that we are actually in, in regards to being able to teach um, and to deliver to our students in an effective and efficient way. Tandy, thank you. Very, very apt point. Um, Elaine? So I work with a young female demographic and um, many of them do lack confidence. So um, with the benefit of this podcast and actually reading more about female coaches, I'm really I'm going to spend time trying to empower them and letting them see that it is a, a viable option for hopefully a career as well. Um, in terms of, I would actually say that our male students have actually become quite enlightened in terms of how they view females and female sport and the female voice, but our females don't aren't recognizing the value that they have yet. And so it's on them now to maybe acknowledge it. Um, uh, in terms of small change, I'm going to change my leadership assignment to reflect more of a female uh, uh, point of view. Um, the other thing that we had planned to do within our club was that there was some funding for camps. Um, now, one of the things that we're looking for was culture. And I think building female sports culture is actually a really viable and good way in terms of the whole girl power and particularly with young girls. So we're going to really push this through and try and get the money to run that this year to build the next generation of, of young female coaches. Fantastic, Elian. Thank you. And finally, Lucy. Yeah, so mine wouldn't be... Um dissimilar to what Elaine was saying really about um not just mentoring younger girls but but sponsoring you know giving people opportunities when they come up and giving them the nudges to go for things I want to be more proactive in in doing that particularly for girls who are different to me or have come from a different background to me and um I want to do that more more proactively and the other thing is recruiting an army of male allies on this charge like like you two 
So keep rounding up the blokes who can help us because uh, we need you. Fantastic. Thank you, Lucy. And that, that is one thing that Simon himself have talked about that in terms of the podcasts and, and the webinars that, that we deliver, um, it's a, we, we really want to get um, the fantastic female coaches and coach developers that are, that are currently out there doing a fantastic job for the coaches and the participants and the athletes out there in, in the sporting system. And I think it's really important to recognize that and can continue to um, offer the opportunity uh, to have a really diverse approach to how we do things. So guys, thank you very much to all three of you for contributing to a really important topic. Um, it was fantastic to hear uh, your thoughts and, and your opinions and your experiences. Um, for all the listeners, this is our last episode of 2020. We hope um, you've enjoyed it so far. We will be continuing to bring you other episodes in 2021. Guys, thank you very much. So Michael, really, really enjoyable conversation with Elaine, Tambi and Lucy. Uh, what what are the thoughts that hit you afterwards? Uh, so so much. I mean, the, the conversation went a number of different ways there, and I thought it was all really important points in relation to the female uh, females in coaching. The first one that really struck with me was around um, coach education and coach development, and how um, we we potentially need to make any coach development or coach education programs uh, more accessible, more appealing, uh, more purposeful uh, in order to attract uh, fem female coaches uh, and make them feel welcome and secure in that environment. Um, and while female-only coach development programs are, are really important and really useful at times, we also need to look at the wider um, coach education offer um, to ensure that the females are given a, a fantastic opportunity to engage. The second one was really around how we recruit females into coaching roles. So basically our, our, our current practices in relation to recruitment um, uh, as effective as they could be and, and they're probably not based on the discussions that we had and, and all three of our guests were able to come up with some um, really useful and innovative ideas of actually how we can challenge uh, recruitment at, at this point. Yeah, I think um, for me, I agree with the points that you've made there and uh, people, I think, being a real real key theme and, and people-centred. I know we've both got a daughter and we've both got a son and as things stand, my Abby and your Lucy are much less likely to coach uh, in sport than my Josh and your Rudy and, and that, can't, that can't be a, the right thing to do. So I suppose we've got a responsibility uh, professionally, but also personally to, to that not be the case by the time that they're of an age where you, you might um, you might start coaching. And for me, um, as I say, it was very people-centered points were the big bits for me. So Tandy um, spoke about creating a sense of belonging, feeling like you should be there and creating environments where uh, coaches, all coaches, um, and in the context of this conversation, uh, female coaches feel like they should be there, whether that's where they're deployed or whether that's where the education happens or, or whatever it happens, they, we need to take steps to make sure that happens. Elaine talked about coaching being about people, about being around people, how you interact with people, how you inspire people. Um, and, and that definitely struck a chord with me. And I think Lucy summarized all of that really nicely uh, when she said about seeing coaches as participants, because we know if we look at participants, we'll look at their wants and their needs and we'll try and, create an experience around them that hits both of those things um, and I'm not sure that we always do that for coaches um, so that's probably the big thing for me sort of summarizing all three of those points um, is is taking away that how can we create a, a situation where it is around the wants and needs of coaches 
um, and we help them develop there rather from rather than maybe from absolute fixed curriculums of here you need to get this stuff um, so give them what they need fantastic and as as always three three fantastic guests who you really um give us a lot to think about from from that episode as mentioned this this is our last episode of of 2020 um moving into 2021 you'll you'll definitely hear more of the curious coaching podcast we hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode and all the episodes we've delivered so far um have a wonderful festive period and we'll look forward to uh speaking curious coaching is brought to you by sport northern ireland we hope that this episode has sparked some curiosity for you and your coaching The future belongs to the curious.